you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the February 1st, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we present our fifth show of the new year, a mixed bag of good news and bad news. We say goodbye to a pioneering AIDS scientist, face fear with ice cream in hand, but first, we revisit my interview with a groundbreaking professional basketball player. DeMarco Majors is an ex-professional basketball player who has successfully transitioned into the world of entertainment as an actor, model, and TV host. During the course of his remarkable athletic career, Majors played for teams in Australia, Brazil, Argentina, and the American Basketball Association. The only professional basketball player to ever come out before retirement, Majors broke ground in dealing openly with prejudice and homophobia in the world of professional sports. Because of his personal experience, he is now a spokesman for gay athletes around the world, and in 2008, he was named one of Out Magazine's top 100 most influential gay men and women. Majors also has been directing music videos and fitness shows. His latest venture will see him as the host of his own talk show, Light, L-Y-T-E, Living Your Truth Every Day. And he was recently featured in the Advocate Magazine's 50th anniversary publication celebrating the most influential LGBT people in the last 50 years. He also graces the cover of Pulse magazine as an advocate for HIV-AIDS. He's currently finalizing his first book and couldn't be more excited to share it in 2020. Welcome to IMRU, DeMarco Majors. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, what an introduction. Your platform as a spokesperson for gay athletes around the world, it gives you a unique opportunity. What are some of the most glaring misconceptions about gay athletes that you've been able to dispel, debunk, set straight, so to speak? One of the myths and one of the things that I feel that I was a part of debunking is that gay men can't play sports. It's fascinating to me, and it also amazes me, that people actually believe that your sexuality pulls you back from being able to perform as an athlete, when in fact it is sports that separate you from your sexuality to give you a safe space to navigate in. When you're a young man or woman learning how to play sports, you get to be outside of that fear, outside of that shame. Another one is, <laughs> and this is a funny one, locker rooms are not a gay man fantasy in sports. It's really interesting that when I was younger, my biggest fear when I got to pro sports was that because I was accepting of myself and I had to prove myself on the court invisibly. So when we got into the locker room, most people had no clue. So they would talk to me. We're around each other, getting 
getting dressed, you're naked, you're in the showers, you would be most people's fantasy is a huge fear because you don't want people to look at you in a way of fear. You want to be accepted for just who you are. You want to be accepted for your athleticism, your athletic IQ. So you take the whole idea of sexualizing and over-sexualizing when you're in the locker room, you know, in certain situations and even in the shower, those are the most intimate places. And so I was very clear in my mind and in my heart, I never looked at another player sexually like that because I did not want to be treated that way. Now, I'm not saying that I never had certain situations happen. Those situations were other people's fear when they find out you're gay and they have myths that every gay man wants to look at them or touch them. And I had to say to a teammate one time, I asked him, I said, in front of everybody, I'm not being arrogant, but I want you to look at yourself and then I want you to look at me. Why would I be attracted to you when you're not even attracted to yourself? And then, you know, you get the whole ooze and all that other stuff. But the player also knew that on the basketball team, I'm not a tough guy. That's not how I grew up. But what you won't do is disrespect me. We're not going to live that type of life. We're going to be very respectful of each other. We're going to communicate on the court that this is about team. It's about family. It's about working hard. It's not about my sexuality nor yours. But I was young back in those days. <laughs> when you came out as an athlete, not unlike when it comes to racial issues in this country and having to prove yourself even harder if you're not a straight white male, what was it like for you I, as an athlete when you came out? How much more conscious and self-conscious were you of this? And how did that sort of either impede or inspire you? When I, I guess you can say come out because I didn't know that there was a coming out thing. I didn't know that that was a thing because I had never been in the gay community, straight community, I was just, I was an athlete. I was a very religious person. So I didn't, I had never been around people who, where this was that experience. You had to talk to people and come out. I just answered a question. People would ask me, are you gay? And I'd be like, yes, because I didn't know that it was a thing. When I started playing pro ball, I was still a virgin. So I had never been with a man or a woman before in my entire life. I was a virgin until I was 24, almost 25 years old. But at this time, when I first started, I was like 22. I started going on mission trips and playing ball and all that stuff. I was always aware of my surroundings because it just wasn't safe being black. Yeah, there are things that you have to think about that me, as a white man, is not part of my daily consciousness. Absolutely. I was taught at a very young age by family members. At home, you are Marco. The moment you step outside that door... You are a little black boy. You are a black man. And that is for a lot of people in this world and in this country and in your hometown in Indiana. Your skin color, son, is a weapon to people. It causes fear. And I didn't understand that, but I had to know that. I had to know how to talk to people. I had to make sure it wasn't that, oh, you need to speak driving, you need to be, do this. No, I had to speak in a certain way in order for people to not only take me seriously, but it's an education of self because you have to understand your surroundings. When did your father have this conversation with you? And it was just your father or was it a father and mother conversation? Well, it was my mom. It was my mom who I had to have these conversations with. My father had his own set of issues because my father was a paraplegic my entire life. I'd never seen my father walk. My mom is the one that I had to learn in the fourth grade. My fourth grade teacher was giving me D's and F's. My mom was very, very strict on me in my formative years as a young boy. I had to come home and do my homework. No questions asked. You better not turn on that TV and make sure those chores are done. This is Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to my interview with former professional basketball player DeMarco Majors. And she's seen my work. 
So she know that it was a decent F. And then she got so upset because at first, you know, I was getting punished. I was getting whoopings and all this other stuff. Like, why are you getting bad grades? And then she went up to the school. And when she walked into the room, that teacher, it made sense. That was the teacher that she had when she was in grade school. And he was a very racist person. And he learned very fast whose child I was because he looked there and he said, he said, Portia, the ball's in your court. She jumped up and slapped him in his face. <laughs> and you don't want to be that kid in school. Like everybody's like, whose mama is that? But those are the lessons that you learn in Indiana very fast, especially when you're going to school in the 80s. As far as coming into professional sports, my first opportunities of going overseas was with a small Christian group. I noticed the racism in the Christian group. And a lot of them would say, oh, God, here we go again. Yes, it is here we go again, because I'm seeing you guys recite scripture, book, chapter, and verse, yet the way you treat me is anything you don't even realize it. And because I was very, very quiet, I internalized it until I was asked one day by the leader coming back from a game when I was in Argentina playing. And the leader said to me, he said, DeMarco, what do you think? You never talk. And I said, are you sure you want to hear what I have to say? Of course, yes. I said, honestly, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You don't even realize it. Each one of you speaks a good game about being a Christian in the Bible, but you recite books from other men rather than looking at each other and confessing sin and going to scriptures and actually helping one another. You are supposed to confess to each other and read those scriptures and pray together, and none of you do that at all. And when I talk to you about racial things, because you don't experience what I experience on the basketball court, you don't experience the European men in Argentina hitting you harder and saying things to you in, in Portuguese and in Spanish that are very racial things. You don't get to experience that. That's what I'm experiencing. And when I start to share these things with you, you guys turn your heads. You're very hypocritical. Everyone looked at me and they were just like, every single time we have a discussion, you have to talk. You found your voice and you waited for the moment to express it. You spoke with such clarity and without judgment, but with observation, you were observing people's actual behavior and the consequences of that behavior and how it affected you. And when asked, you told it like it is. That was my heart because I was in such an in-between place. Here I am with this Christian group doing missionary work and playing professional basketball. I got an understanding that when you have clarity, you give other people peace because you are no longer a piece of yourself. You are a whole person. So when you have clarity, you also get peace. And that was an important lesson that I was fortunate enough to understand at that age. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. On an even deeper and more personal level, you opened up about a chapter in your life for BuzzFeed News reported by Patrick Strudwood in a way that I have rarely seen. It literally took my breath away, DeMarco. I firmly believe that your story and the three others that were featured in that article can and will save lives. Now, for our listeners, wow. yeah, the article for BuzzFeed News is entitled, This is Why Queer People of Color Are Becoming Addicted to Meth and Sex. Now, why was participating in this news feature so important to you? What an amazing question, because you have no idea. The shirt that I have on right now, I just thought today was just important. I didn't have any idea of the, this question at all, but I thought today was going to be so special and it was important to me. Last year, my friend and one of my first mentors in the gay community, black man, Timothy Dean, was found dead 
in Ed Buck's home. And his best friend, Alex, he went through the house and he found something. And he presented a shirt to me and said, I believe Tim would have wanted you to have something. He would have wanted you to have this. And I'm wearing that shirt right now. So this question means so much to me. Being able to share my story was very important to me because I no longer wanted to live in the story. No longer wanted to live in the idea, in the trauma, in the manipulation of what the world sees as someone who has been an addict, someone who has an addiction. It was very important for me to heal and being able to now have the words that could actually flow without me forcing the words. Because sometimes we get in such a space where we force words to come out because we need to answer something. It just wasn't time for me before because I was, it just wasn't my time. Being a part of Patrick's article was really important to me because I needed healing. And if I could ever share with anyone, any moment of time, especially when it, in regards to addiction, because before you get to the chemicals, you actually have an addiction to the emotions and the trauma and the very things that were going on with you that took you down that path. That's why it was so important to me. If I could share anything that was a part of my life as someone, anyone, even if it's just one person that could see value in that and gain a perspective of their own self-worth and step into their own light and their own space and their own healing, then my life and my experiences in my life was worth it because I didn't just go through all of that with just cause. I know for a fact that on my path in this journey, there are people along that path that I am supposed to meet that are supposed to get the blessing. And if I continue to live in trauma, if I continue to live in fear, if I continue to live in this stigma, then those people who are on my path would not get the blessing and the understanding that they need because what was given to me at birth. So I had to remove myself from discouragement because I truly believe that discouragement is distancing yourself from courage. And I wanted to have courage in my life. And so I decided, what was I distancing myself and courage with? And it was my anxiety, my fear, my addiction, my sexuality. So I really had to break those things down and overcome those things. And the closer I get to courage, the better off not only my life will be, but those people who will be on my path will be. Hopefully, I was able to take the path of humility and share in such a way that people, that it could resonate with them and they could find peace in their own life. You take the shame out of it. And because you share it so honestly and so openly, that's the gift you're giving to people who feel the weight of the shame of the stumbles that have happened in their life. Thank you for saying that. And I really, really appreciate it. When you've walked streets in the dead of winter, in the cold of the East Coast, and you feel like people are looking at you weird and you feel hurt. You don't want to do something that could harm you, but the addiction is so strong in you that you feel like you're on autopilot. Other times when you walk in, in the height of summer and you're feeling amazing about yourself and then you have this thing that whispers, this monkey on your back whispers to you and pulls you in a direction that you may or may not want to go into. When you're able to remove yourself from moments like that, you have no other choice but to be humble about your approach and your story. Because guess what? Shame is not the place and not the space that will heal you. It's not going to save you. It's not going to protect you. And no one on this earth is going to save you from yourself. That is something that you have to do. DeMarco Majors, when all is said and done, what do you want your legacy to be? I would say, it's not important about being the first, but to be effective at what you do. And if anything would be put on my headstone or people that remember DeMarco Majors, I am perfect as I am and as I am not.
Can you tell our listeners where we can find you on social media? Yes, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at my name, DeMarco Majors, D-Majors, D-E, capital M-A-J-O-R-S, on Instagram. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. The History of Black History Month, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The seeds of Black History Month were planted in 1915, when historian Carter G. Woodson and prominent minister Jesse E. Moreland founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. That organization sponsored the first National Negro History Week in 1926. They chose the second week of February for remembrance, the same week that Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were born. In the decades that followed, mayors of cities issued proclamations recognizing the week, which evolved into Black History Month on many college campuses. President Gerald R. Ford was the first president to officially recognize Black History Month in 1976, calling on the public to seize the opportunity to honor the two often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Joanne Colbert-Gunn. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. So pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And you are listening to IMRU Radio. There is news that Big Gay Ice Cream is closing its East Village and Philadelphia locations. What started as the Big Gay Ice Cream truck, before launching several brick-and-mortar locations, always found the gay in a frosty treat. And when Steve asked Sherry Lunn to cover the startup New York City Enterprise a few years ago, she said, You had me at ice cream. Gay Ice Cream on a busy street corner in Union Square in New York City with Doug Quint, the owner and founder of the Big Gay Ice Cream Truck. Today in New York City was hot and muggy and in my travels past this truck today, many, many lines around the corner. Now the Big Gay Ice Cream Truck sits about a block away from anti-gay Bible-thumping protesters on the other end of Union Square. So, Doug, before we start talking about that, tell me a little bit about why you founded the Big Gay Ice Cream Truck. It all was a strange alignment of circumstances and timing. Mainly, it was because I was looking for a strange summer job. And I'm a professional bassoon player. I play in whatever orchestra hires me and I travel all over the East Coast. And especially in the summer, you run from festival to festival. 
And I've always done that. I've done that since I was in high school, going to music camp and then to professional festivals. And last summer I thought, well, maybe I'll just stay in New York and do something. I don't know. Maybe I'll be an exterminator. Who knows? Maybe I'll just write the great American novel. And one day I logged into Facebook and my friend's status message said, if you want to drive an ice cream truck, get in touch with me. And, you know, it was all too weird. It just seemed fortuitous it seemed to present itself in front of me and so I thought well okay I'm gonna drive an ice cream truck this summer who wouldn't that's how and so what kind of reaction have you had from your rainbow colored ice cream cone on the side of your truck all good really uh, almost entirely elation from people a lot of them walk by and they see the banner that says big gay ice cream truck on it and they have to say the five words out five words right yeah <laughs> they have to say it out loud because it's just it's so strange to them so they all say it and then they get this quizzical look on their face and then they just burst out into laughter which is exactly the right reaction that's what I'm after you have some interesting flavors. I personally had the Salty Pimp mm -hmm. today, which is a big gob of vanilla ice cream covered in salty chocolate with caramel. Yep, yep. What other flavors you have here? Well, the flavors of ice cream are real basic stuff. It's vanilla, chocolate, and twist. So it's not really so much about the flavors of ice cream, it's about how we dress it up. So all these ice cream trucks in New York have exactly the same menu with the different sprinkles. So yeah, we, you know, we had the chance to get a big ice cream machine and we thought, well, we're going to put olive oil on it, you know, and peppermint syrup and line our cones with Nutella, things like that. Yeah, wasabi. Whatever strikes our fancy, we'll try it out and see if it works. So basically the big gay gourmet ice cream truck. Yeah, I, I don't think my boyfriend and I, or I really think of ourselves as gourmets, but he's a pretty daring eater and I, I'm willing to try. And it got to the point last summer where we started seeing everything as whether it would go on ice cream or not. You know, we would walk to the grocery store trying to plan a meal for ourselves and everything that we saw was either an ice cream topping or not an ice cream topping. So it got impossible to just plan a menu. Everything revolved around ice cream to us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Meet me at the ice cream truck. I'll buy you an ice cream. I whip up my drumstick. That will make your eyes gleam. Lick it up quick before it melts on the floor. I got it. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Give me some more. Okay, meet me at the ice cream truck. I'll buy you an ice cream. I can test on my luck. You can play on my team. Let's do the banana split on the dance floor. Got it. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Give me some more. Okay. Okay. I met him at the schoolyard round quarter to three We went out for cheeseburgers with extra cheese I get my friends fries crispy ketchup on the side And when it comes to dessert, this is how I ride I said, meet me at the ice cream truck Empty storefronts, the result of both rising rents and the COVID-19 pandemic, have settled in Many great businesses have closed but the big gay ice cream locations in New York City on the Upper West Side and West Village remain open for now. Speaking of treats, a nominee for the 86th Academy Awards, the documentary film Facing Fear, is one of our favorites and gave us the chance to bring together the protagonists for a chat about hate. And last week's International Holocaust Remembrance Day seemed like a perfect time to revisit it. You have got to be taught to hate and fear day after day, year after year. Hello, this is Tim Zoll, a former racist skinhead. 
It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. Hello, I am Matthew Boger. You've got to be carefully taught. Tell me your story. When I was 13 years old, I was thrown out of my house by my mom when I identified as being gay. Forced to live on the streets for four and a half years. About seven or eight months while I was living on the streets of Los Angeles in Plummer Park in West Hollywood. One night I was the victim of 10 or 12 neo-Nazi punks who beat me in an alley, left me there for dead. I'm assuming believed they had killed me. 26 years later, after a long career doing something else, I went to manage the Museum of Tolerance, which I still do, and befriended a former neo-Nazi who turned out to have been one of the guys that were in the alley that night. Tell me your story, your side. Um, hmm. Basically, I grew up in the East San Gabriel Valley area in a predominantly Anglo neighborhood. And when I was very young, my brother was shot by an African-American man. He did survive, but of course that left me with uh, fear of minorities and resentment and things of that nature. When I got into my teen years, I was angry, young, suburban kid, got involved with the hardcore punk scene here in L.A., you know, violence was at the core of what we were doing. And I was uh, what they called a Nazi punk. So, you know, uh, the punk scene was predominantly violent at that time anyhow. And the Nazi punks took things a little bit further. After that, I went on to get involved with organized hate groups. I was fairly high up on the food chain. I was director of operations, recruitment, and propaganda for the White Aryan Resistance and, and Tom Metzger. Made a change in my life uh, in my late 20s, early 30s when I became a parent and I grew a conscience all of a sudden. I think it was hiding there the whole time, but I did grow a conscience and I ended up at the Museum of Tolerance a couple years afterwards. And I've been there ever since. I've been there for 12 years now. What actually got me going to initially go to the Museum of Tolerance was I had a friend who was a former racist skinhead who worked at the Museum of Tolerance, and he left, which opened the door for me. And so I've been there for, for 12 years. Well, take me back to the, your first encounter with Matthew. Mm-hmm. How old were you? 17. And what did you think of gay people? At that time, it was a mixture of fear, um, not understanding, anger, territorial things going on, because also back in those days, you had the LAPD, you had the gay community, and you had the punk rockers in the Hollywood area, and we were clashing. And anybody who would get into our way when we were on a rampage stood the chance of getting hurt. This particular evening, it happened to be Matthew and his friends, and we had left a nightclub where we had been hassled by the police on the way to the place where the attack took place. We did stop several times to get out of the car and slap people around and be big and macho and tough. And then by the time we had gotten to Okie Dogs, which was the name of the the hamburger stand where the uh, attack took place, somebody shouted, let's kill the faggots. And sounded like a good idea. And I partook in the violence. And that was not uncommon for me. It made me feel good. It made me feel tough. It made me feel like I was in control. It made me feel like I had power. And obviously I graduated to bigger and better or badder, depending on your perspective, things later on in life. Were you angry? Was it hate? 
It was hate. It was frustration. It was not feeling like I fit in. I don't believe that there's anything exclusive about people who get involved with hate groups in comparison with, say, a gang or any sort of violent, radical subculture or lifestyle. I think that's a, a major misconception. A lot of the problems are the same are the same causes, whether it's family problems, whether it's uh, you know daddy problems, whether it's uh, socioeconomic. You know, I could have become a, a drug addict, an alcoholic, a gang member, any of the above. However, because of my upbringing and because of my ethnicity and because of, I believe, especially my brother being shot by an African-American man and surviving, it was a natural sort of thing for me. I took years and years and years of German in junior high school. For some reason, I was, uh, I don't know, uh, led in that direction. I was intrigued by the whole Nazi thing. Matthew, what do you remember of him that night? Well, I only remember one thing about Tim, and that was his boot. Um, I the, the memory of his boot was the one that kicked me in the forehead that sort of left the scar that's on there now. That was sort of the one that stands out in my mind. The last memory of that night of, before I went unconscious was watching the 10 or 12 guys kind of high-five each other and seemed to be very sense of bravado and, and proud of what they had done. Those are the memories that stick out the most. And... How did you know who it was when you met again? Well, I didn't recognize him physically. Totally different look in person. We actually worked together for several months. We sort of became work acquaintances, friends, talking every week when he would come in to do his presentation. The way I knew who he was was when we had a conversation. We were sitting there talking, and the conversation went kind of back to where, where we grew up, where we hung out, what we did, you know, just telling him that I was a street kid. And I... Don't remember the exact words, but I believe he had said something along the lines of, we used to hang out at Okie Dogs as well until this one night where it had gotten really violent. That's when I knew who I was sitting across from because nobody knew what happened in that alley but myself and the people that carried out the attack. And what year was that? 1980. It was very shortly after I was thrown out. I was thrown out in 1979. And obviously that was the worst incident. But were there other incidents living on the street in Hollywood in the 80s? Not violent attacks. There were, you know, there was a constant victimization of children out there who, you know, there was no way to get around that or to avoid it because I was this little 13 and 14-year-old trying to survive. So the victimization was different. It wasn't necessarily hate. It was other things that went on on the streets. But those also took place as well. And how did it change you? What was the aftermath of that? Well, hmm. I think after I got off the street, I mean, yeah, I was a tough kid with a foul mouth and had an attitude problem and resentment and abandonment issues. And most people understand after I explain it, I had a resentment against the gay community because those victimizations came from other gay men and sort of had to spend 17 years consistently in therapy to end up where I am today. What do you want people to take away from your stories? <laughs> I, You know, it's one of those things where the possibility to change and to forgive Everybody has that ability to do that, whether they search with inside themselves. Forgiveness actually is that process which then sets you free from the incident without letting the other person be less accountable. Or it sets you free from the incident, the moment that defines you, so that you can then redefine yourself and move forward. That moment had defined a lot of my life and had defined, in a way, a fear. So I lived sort of in this place of fear of certain things that came from that night. They could be little things, people with bald heads, you know, certain areas of town. 
And there was also an anger that was sort of inside and a resentment that just kind of hung there. When I realized that the possibility of letting those things go through the process of forgiveness, I decided to embark on that journey and see where it led me. And one of the best examples I have of somebody who could not forgive was when Tim and I were in the Men's Central Jail last week doing this talk. There was a, a gentleman who angrily and vehemently discussed this guy who had raped him when he was 15 years old. And he could never forgive him. Yeah. And he goes, and I'll never even approach the idea. I hate him. And I looked right at him and I simply said, you hear the anger in your voice? You hear that venom that's coming out of your mouth? I said, what if you had a way of getting rid of that anger but not letting them off the hook? He then at the end said that he would then start to look into forgiving that person. And Tim, when you realized that this was the same person, what went through your mind? Uh, shock at first, a little bit of numbness. You know, I had been at the Museum of Tolerance for a while. I had never had to deal with victims of any of my past behaviors on a personal level. I mean, although I had been charged with hate crimes prior to hate crime laws being in effect, it was the first time I had to face-to-face -face deal with my past. And, and it was difficult. It was, and it still is, an ongoing process. I think one of the hardest things that I've dealt with out of this whole thing is guilt, shame, self-hatred, a lot of those type of things. There was days when I couldn't even look in the mirror without saying, you're a piece of crud. And when I would get up in the morning, I wouldn't want to go do our presentations that we did. However, I put one foot in front of the other one and did it. And the reason I did is because it's healing. It heals me, it heals others, and it shows others that they can change. And I usually walk away from the experience feeling positive. Sometimes not, but again, it is an ongoing process. Could you have forgiven him? If somebody had done to me what I did to Matthew, I would hope that I would have the manhood, the strength to be able to to forgive. I don't know if I would be able to. I really, really don't. I hope I would because I know what it feels like to have that anger within you. And it's it's like a festering infection that can explode at any time. And it's not a nice way to live. I lived it for many, many years with that anger and resentment within me. And once I was able to release that, it made me into a different person as a result. And, and I feel freer as a result. And how has forgiveness helped you? How has forgiveness helped me? Um, well, I know that, um, for example, if there's something going on, if I have a resentment against somebody, if somebody has, I believe, treated me in a wrong manner, I have to let it go. You have to let it go. If I don't let it go, I haven't taken care of my serenity, my sanity, my peace of mind, my happiness in life. The longer I hold on to that sort of stuff, the worse it gets. So I recommend it. Are you friends? We are. People ask, how do you define your friendship? It's more familial than it is like that friendship where you go and hang out and have dinner. And it's more, you know, like family style. You know, it's like I think of him as a family member. But we are friends. We do drive each other crazy a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
This has been a conversation with Tim Zale and Matthew Boger. Their presentation, From Hate to Hope, is at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles on the first Sunday of every month, and a short documentary about the duo called Facing Fear, produced, written, and directed by Jason Cohen, won the Audience Award at Outfest 2013. Find the film's website at facingfearmovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. It flies in the face of all your pride. It moves away the mad inside. It's always anger's own worst enemy. Even when the jury and the judge say you got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying set it free. Facing Fear is available to stream free on the Tubi app. Next, we'll take a quick break. Don't touch that dial. Acclaimed American sculptor Edmonia Lewis, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Edmonia Lewis was born in the 1840s. Her father was African-American and her mother was Chippewa Indian. Since they both died when Edmonia was very young, she was raised by her mother's tribe. They named her Wildfire. With financial help from her brother, Edmonia received art training at Oberlin College and apprenticed with sculptor Edward Brackett in Boston. While there, she befriended lesbian sculptors Anne Whitney and Harriet Hosmer and became part of what writer Henry James dubbed that strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors. Edmonia's masterpieces often reflected her Native American and African ancestry. And while many were lost to history, her two-ton marble statue titled The Death of Cleopatra resides at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Anna Edwards. Hi, I'm Jeff Marks, the creator of Avenue Q, the Broadway musical, and you're listening to I Am Are You. I am are you. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. A bit of sad news. Dr. Joseph Sonnabend, an AIDS research pioneer, died on January 24th at the age of 88. Sonnabend helped create with Michael Callan and Richard Berkowitz guidelines for safe sex that are still practiced today. Steve Pride reports. A light bulb went off in my head, and I realized that there was a lot of ways to have pleasure that wouldn't involve any kind of risk for infections. We started having this heated discussion. I mean, Michael said, oh, isn't that great? You can whip and beat people without spreading AIDS. But Sonoma said, wait a second. There are ways to have sex that interrupt disease transmission. I remember thinking, interrupt disease transmission. I mean, it was visual, it was captivating, and it just completely propelled me. 
Richard Berkowitz, a gay S&M sex worker turned AIDS activist in the 1980s, is the author of Staying Alive, The Invention of Safe Sex, and his life is the subject of the award-winning documentary Sex Positive. The concept of safe sex is now a given, but was not obvious or something the queer community was ready for in 1982. We came up with our safe sex guidelines at a time of incredible panic and paranoia and just all-out hysteria. No one knew what the cause of AIDS was. The first patients that were getting sick were incredibly disfigured and incredibly grisly looking. And when the media started to wake up to AIDS and begin their first stories to report the epidemic, they actually showed up at an AIDS support group that I was a member of in 1982. And they walked out disappointed because there was no one disfigured enough for what they were looking for. So they actually started painting the first pictures of AIDS by hunting down the most disfigured patients. So when when you juxtapose these very disfigured patients that were showing up on TV reports with the fact that no one knew the cause of AIDS, that a new epidemic was emerging, that there was a new case being reported every day, and just panic and, and, and paranoia just broke out everywhere. So juxtaposed against that kind of climate, Michael Callan, the late AIDS activist and good friend of mine and my writing partner in the early days of AIDS, we both had the same doctor, Dr. Joseph Sonnabend, who we were realizing had spent many years as a lab scientist. And so he had opened up a practice in Greenwich Village to treat sexually transmitted diseases in the late 1970s. And with his background as a lab scientist and a microbiologist and virologist, he had an understanding about what was going on with AIDS that was probably deeper than most doctors would be able to understand. So he kind of realized from the practice he had, which was gay men coming to get treated for STDs on a regular basis, that it was his patients who had a history of anal STDs who were showing immunological abnormalities, but that his patients who had a history of only oral or penile sexually transmitted diseases were not showing immunological abnormalities. He came to realize that the most important thing we could do to curb the spread of AIDS was to protect bottoms, and that meant using a condom. So in conversations with me and Michael, he was saying, I know there's all this hysteria and panic going on. He said, but I've had 25 years as a lab scientist, and based on what I'm seeing in my practice with patients whose history I know, I don't think there's any reason for panic. I think that basically um, we need to tell gay men who are sexually anally receptive to use a condom for anal sex, and we can definitely curb the spread of this disease. So Michael and I began writing, actually I began writing, um, first we tried to write an article explaining Sonnabend's scientific theories that we didn't necessarily believe that AIDS was a one-shot deal, that there were a lot of things that could affect the strength of the immune system, and there were a lot of factors in an urban gay male lifestyle, such as drug use and multiple exposures to certain sexually transmitted virus and infections, that might well be playing a role in AIDS, or at least affect how well you coped once you're infected with HIV. So we wrote the first article, which was called We Know Who We Are, and it was very controversial because it was at the peak of the gay sexual revolution. So the idea that two people that hardly anyone knew of would come out writing an article saying, you know, maybe our lifestyle is fueling or driving what's going on was a really painful pill for sexually active gay men to swallow. And we had it published in the New York Native, and the publisher tacked on a subtitle, Two Gay Men Declare War on Promiscuity, 
which made the article extremely controversial and kind of made Callan and I pariahs in, in the gay community. By the time we, we finished writing the article explaining what we thought was going on, that AIDS was more complicated than a single exposure to a possible new virus, we were already coming up with ways to figure out how to have sex safely. But because we were so hated from the first article, when we finished our booklet, How to Have Sex in an Epidemic One Approach, the community hated us so much they didn't really want to deal with us, even though we were offering them a way for gay men to have safe sex and, and in some ways to continue the lifestyle that was killing us by intervening with a technological intervention, i.e. a condom. And it was very, very difficult getting our first uh, guidelines out there. In fact, it took two years after we published How to Have Sex in an Epidemic for the first safe sex campaign in New York City to be underway. And that was because of, you know, personality conflicts and political differences. And I think what we've lost by not knowing the early history of how safe sex began is that there really has been no spokesperson representing sexually active gay men. I mean, there's been no one saying... Um, there are a lot of gay men who, who thought that AIDS would convince sexually active gay men to settle down into more monogamous relationships. And there's always been a sense of being willing to sacrifice the quote-unquote sluts by older gay men who wanted gay men to stop living that lifestyle that was not just killing them, but making the community in general look bad. So I think we've really been missing the voice of people who defend promiscuity, people who see it as um, a choice that gay men can and do make, and that there are ways to be sexually active and protect yourself and your partner. And um, I think that's what got written out of history when Callan and I and Sonnabin got written out of history. You know, to have s very sexually active gay men speaking to very sexually active gay men, rather than having gay men who wish gay men would settle down to monogamy telling gay sexually active gay men what to do. Just say no. Kind of, yeah. What about today? Studies say that safe sex isn't being practiced by the younger generation. Overall, I think gay men have actually been extraordinarily responsible in protecting themselves and their partners because even though the infection rate continues, no one ever stops to think about the infection rates that aren't, you know. And living in New York City and knowing sexually active gay men who are half my age and they're in their 20s, I can say that there's an awful lot of gay men who are being safe and are protecting themselves and their partners, but we don't measure that. We don't report that. We don't, we don't acknowledge it. And I think it's been sad that, you know, safe sex was 25 years old this past May, and I tried really hard to get anybody in the media to report that it was the 25th anniversary of the invention of safe sex, and no one was interested. So I think when people are doing something good, like protecting themselves and their partners and having safe sex, I think it's important to acknowledge it, to pat them on the back and say, you know something, it's not easy, but you know a lot of people have been safe, and we applaud you, and we encourage you to keep on with it. And that voice has never been out there. I mean, one thing I see in the documentary is it's kind of shocking to me that people are always focus on a 1% infection rate, a 2% infection rate, but what about the infection rate that isn't? So I think a lot of gay men have been extraordinarily responsible, and no one's ever taken a moment to say, you know, good for you. But after eight years of Bush and the almost decimation of a lot of government-funded safe sex education campaigns, you know, something bad is happening. I think um, we've learned the hard way that abstinence campaigns are not really effective. And when you substitute abstinence campaigns, which we've learned are not effective, with safe sex education campaigns, which we know are effective, you know, the end result is what we're seeing now, which is rising HIV infection rates 
among all strata of uh, gay men, white, black, Hispanic, women. And uh, I'm hoping with the new administration, obviously a Democratic one, that we can get back to the work of doing sex education the way we've learned from history it works, which is grassroots, targeted, um, specific campaigns designed and created by the different communities at risk. In other words, Hispanic people do a safe sex campaign for sexually active Hispanics. The inner city black community designs their own campaigns that speak to their own people. Different communities need to create their own materials. They need to be funded, but they need to create their own materials that speak specifically to their own people. That's what's worked the best. I mean, in the late 1980s, we had porn stars and sex workers and people whose lives revolved around sex having a role in designing the materials that were made. And I think the materials of the last 10 or 15 years have been so unimaginative and so anti-sexual and judgmental. And there's a very sex-negative element to it. And I think people have just come to the point where they just tune it out. In the late 80s, when uh, safe sex education was at its best and HIV infection rates were at their lowest, the kind of materials that were being created, they were very erotic and very striking and pornographic. And the most important element that we've lost over the years is that they were celebratory. You have to celebrate. If you're going to tell gay men to use condoms for a linear course, you have to first celebrate the act. Otherwise, it sounds like you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Part of the feminist critiques of healthcare that was written in the 1970s, which had a huge impact on the writings of Michael Callan and I, documented 150 years of experts dismissing clitoral orgasm for women and the human misery that resulted from that. And when you read a lot of the safe sex materials of the last 10 or 15 years, it's almost like these people are oblivious about the existence of anal orgasm. If you're going to tell gay men to consider giving up anal sex, you're not promoting safe sex. You're basically undermining it because once people discover anal orgasm, they're not going to give it up for safe sex. And we have condoms, so they don't have to. Before the plague, who was Richard Berkowitz? I had always wanted to be a filmmaker. I mean, I spent my four years at Rutgers. At the, I spent more time at the school newspaper office writing about films with the hope of going to NYU graduate film school. And then my dream came true, and I got into film school. But I spent so much money making my films that I needed a one-year financial leave of absence to make some money to go back to school. And it was in that time that I stuck my toe in the water of sex work to see if it was possible for me to make enough money to get back to grad school by doing sex work in New York City. Right from the get-go, the first few guys that met me uh, were aware that I was kind of a left-wing activist, that I was really angry about... I was politically angry about what was going on in the country. I was young and impatient. I wanted the country to accept gay rights overnight. And as Ronald Reagan moved closer and closer to inhabiting the White House, my anger got even more... Got, more, got deeper. And the first few guys that hired me tapped into that anger by wanting me to play the role of an S&M top. And they bought me accoutrements, and they taught me what to do, and I took to it like a fish to water. It became an outlet, a creative outlet, actually, for the anger that I had in, as an activist that was turning into bitterness and cynicism because of the, the direction the country was moving in moving towards the right with Reagan. So I, you know, I was taught how to do what I did. And I guess I had the raw skills to be good at it because I loved what I did. And uh, I was responsible in the way I did it. It was fascinating to me. 
And the time, I certainly made enough money to go back to grad school, but the time to return came and went without my even realizing it because I became so wrapped up in being a successful S&M top for hire. Your background was used to discredit your message. Tell me about that. I think like blacks and Jews, whenever an, a group that's trying to be admitted into the mainstream of a society, I think there's always this <coughs> acute concern about how we're going to be seen. And I think that was part of the problem that happened when AIDS came along, was that people were worried that it was going to be used to deny us our rights. It would be used to push us back further into the closet, which, of course, you know, it did for many years. And I think people were really tortured by how to talk about AIDS in the mainstream media while worrying at the same time about how straight people would react to gay men, that this, would be, this was bad for our image. But having been a member of the First AIDS Support Group in New York City and watching gay men in their 20s and 30s, you know, wasting away and dying and believing from, from the beginning that there was a way to prevent this, uh, I think part of the problem that Callan and I had was we were seeing the epidemic from the point of view of people who were, you know, dying, a really horrible death. And we didn't care about how it looked to the straight world. We first and foremost wanted to save lives. And I think a lot of people in the community were really upset by how graphic we were and how we were more concerned with saving lives than with protecting an image. And I think a lot of the people who stepped forward in the early days of AIDS as gay community leaders were more concerned about the image because maybe they hadn't seen firsthand what Count and I were seeing in the first AIDS support group. So there were a lot of conflicts and there was a lot of political divisions and it was very difficult to find ways to talk about AIDS in our country and especially to talk about safe sex because it was very anal-centric, and that makes even a lot of gay men uncomfortable. But that's really, I think, the major risk and what we have to grapple with if we want to protect sexually active young people from getting infected. This has been a conversation with Richard Berkowitz, whose contribution to the invention of safe sex has never been aptly credited. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Dr. Sonnabin died of a heart attack in London, and his loss is felt around the world. Tonight's last word is a reading from the book California Screaming by its author, Doug Guinan. Kevin changed into a trampy outfit. They were going to pavilions, the scene of some of the heaviest cruising in the world, and it was obligatory to address appropriately. Shoppers lingered there for hours in a trance state before settling on a lean cuisine, a single can of Diet Coke, and a pint of rum. Pavilions was where most guys went after the athletic connection if they didn't get sex in the sauna. It was the next logical place. Shopping carts slowed and lingered or simply followed Kevin around. Leon secretly hoped the strangers they passed, guys they had seen around town forever, would think that he and Kevin were lovers. It was as if the connection would raise Leon's own stock. They selected some protein and carbohydrates with extreme care, knowing every morsel that went into their bodies would affect their muscle mass, the shininess of their hair, their skin. The skin, of course, being absolutely everything. A combative discussion of gastrointestinal tract conditions arose, so they decided to split up and go on separate search and destroy missions. Kevin sought out the spinach juice while Leon hunted down the papaya. 
Then they backtracked through the produce section, both believing that their hair was crying out for the fat lipids that could only be found in avocados. Nothing was chosen for taste. Look, Leon, tomatoes, great for the prostate. They bagged up 20. Kevin, asparagus? I don't know what it does for you, but it makes your stuff smell really foul. Throw them in. In the bread aisle, Leon examined a package of organic wheat dinner rolls. Darling, put those down, Kevin clucked. Wheat is packed with naturally occurring estrogen. We're not quite there yet, are we? Agreed Leon. Far from it. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. And now, Miss Bette Midler. Goodbye, Donnie. Well, goodbye, Donnie. It's so nice you'll soon be right where you belong. Writing memoirs, Donnie. Behind bars, Donnie. Once the birth that cursed the earth to Leavenworth has gone. The tax you owe, Donnie. Your last hope, Donnie. All the lies that we despise at last will end. Did you read the election? 100%. You're locked up, sucker. I can just hear your butt.